That song we just sang, Indescribable, it's a beautiful song about God's power, especially as evidenced in creation. Can you put the lyrics uh, back up? From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty from the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings. But all the world is exclaiming that God is powerful. That when you look around and you see creation, we can't help but acknowledge that the God who created all things is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-amazing. And so we sing about his amazing nature. But the thing I find most powerful about this song, the most powerful line, is actually the most unexpected line. Because the whole song, excuse me, is all about God's power until you get to the last line. Can you put up the next? Oh, you did. See the last lines? You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. It's unexpected because the whole song's been about power. The whole song's been about how God creates. The whole song is about how amazing God is and the demonstrations of his creative power. And then you get to, if you will, the punchline, which is this God who is all-powerful loves you. And he loves me. Despite the depths of the sin in our hearts. And I actually think that the songwriter has gotten on to something really, really important is that God's power and God's love go hand in hand. That these are connected and that the more we believe in God as powerful, the more we're ready to hear how much he loves us. But the corollary is also true the more we doubt God's power, it's not long until we start also doubting his love for us. And this week we've spent a lot of time, if you're like me, news media, reading things, listening to things in which God's power is doubted. And the result can be that you and I can begin to question his love. And so this morning, I believe that God has chosen a passage and a message for you and to me to remind us that while the world around us has their questions about God, that God wants us to know that he loves us, that he sees us, and that he's concerned for the things that we're going through. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. We think this is so important that we provide Bibles in the rack in front of you. They look like this. If you take one of these Bibles and turn to page 797, you'll be in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a book in the Bible called a Gospel because it's the story of the good news, which is what Gospel means, of Jesus as told to us by Matthew. And it's a story of Jesus' life and his interactions here on earth. And we get to look at a part of his story today, Matthew chapter 15. We're actually going to be in part of 15 and then part of Matthew 16 as we look at a powerful story and an important message that God has for us. Matthew chapter 15, 
page 797. I'm going to start in verse 29 with the opening story here of Jesus feeding 4,000. It says in verse 29, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Now stop there for a moment. We haven't even gotten into the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 yet. Jesus is sort of even before this begins, he is healing lots of people. Not just one or two people. He's there for three days doing nonstop healings. Imagine how many people Jesus can heal in three days' time. And so all of the people are overwhelmed with God's power. And so they are praising him, and the crowds get to see stuff they've never seen before. They couldn't even imagine. I mean, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, those who can't speak are able to speak. Not just one or two people, hundreds of people showing up, everybody getting healed. Not just some, everybody getting healed. For three straight days, it is an awesome display of God's power. Well, the story continues. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men beside women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, the first part of our story is a display of Jesus' power for the crowds. The second part of the feeding of the 4,000 really focuses less on the power and more on the compassion of Jesus. And this is especially for the disciples. Because just like in the feeding of the 5,000, we're not sure that the 4,000 even know that a miracle has happened. They don't know that Jesus hasn't brought truckloads of food to feed them. They don't know where this has come from. For the crowds, they're getting to see Jesus' power in all of the miracles of healing. But for the disciples, they're getting to see Jesus' compassion up close. His love. And so here in this story, which is actually kind of our introductory story, we have more to cover we see two things, the crowd seeing a display of God's power and the disciples seeing a display of God's love. All of that is set up to what comes next in Matthew 16. So keep going with me. 
the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. In verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for a sign, and it says from heaven, but probably we could translate this, they're asking for a sign in the heavens or out of heaven. And what they mean is not sort of heaven where God lives, but the heavens as in the sky. You see, there's lots of examples in the Old Testament, like Elijah, where he calls down fire from heaven, or where Samuel asks for rain from heaven when it's not the rainy season, or when Joshua prays and asks God to have the sun stand still in the sky. These are signs in the heavens. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for. And the reason they're doing it is Jesus has already done tons of stuff on the earth, and they're trying to test him. And so they're trying to dis prove that he is the Messiah and so effectively what they're saying is yeah 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 you're doing lots of cool stuff on the earth but if you're really from God let's see you call down fire from heaven why don't you make lightning strike or have it rain or cause the sun to stand still in the sky what they're looking for is a sign in the heavens from the heavens that would show that Jesus is the Messiah the implication is that if he were to do something like that, if he were to snap his finger or call down lightning or call down fire, that, that then they would believe. But Jesus' response is, hey, you guys are spending a lot of time looking up in the sky, telling the weather, doing all that stuff, and you're missing the stuff going on on the earth, which he calls the signs of the times. What are the signs that they're missing? Well, he just fed 4,000 people. <laughs> he just healed hundreds of people. I mean, these are people who were blind or who were lame or who couldn't speak. He's healing all sorts of people. He's already by this point walked on water. He's cast out demons. He's raised somebody from the dead. Jesus is like, look, you're asking about signs. You're missing all the signs that are happening all around you right now. There's actually one more sign that I think he's referring to here. And that is... The Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to test Jesus. This is like Republican politicians and Democrat politicians uniting together. The sign is, is only God could ever bring these mortal enemies together. And Jesus is like, pay attention. You guys can't get along about anything. What's brought them together? Jesus. And so Jesus says, the signs are happening. So it's not that Jesus is against signs. There's all sorts of signs going on. What's he against? Verse four. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. We could probably translate it this way. 
a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign of their own choosing. That's the implication. There's lots of signs happening. The Pharisees are like, we don't want those signs. We want one from the sky. And Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign of their own choosing instead of the signs that God is freely given. I mean, hundreds of people being healed, thousands of people being fed, someone raised from the dead, someone walking on water. There's tons of signs. But the Pharisees and Sadducees doubting God's power, are asking for a sign in the heavens. Now watch what happens. Remember in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus does miracles for the crowds to see his power, and he shows his compassion and his love to the disciples. Now in verses 1 to 4, God's power is being called into question. Watch what's going to happen in verses 5 to 12 with the disciples. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what's happening here is, is that they get into a boat and they're headed over to the less populated side of the Sea of Galilee. There's less grocery stores on that side. <clears throat> and all of a sudden the disciples realize, oh man, we didn't plan ahead for this. We don't have any food. We don't have any bread. And they're starting to think to themselves, where would we find food? What if we get there and there's no food? And Jesus says, really? You're really worried about food? And his point is, do you not think I will take care of you? Have you not seen me feed 5,000 people? Have you not seen me feed 4,000 people? There was plenty of food. Why are you worried that there's not going to be any food? Watch carefully what happened. The feeding of the 4,000, God displays his power to the crowds and his love to the disciples. The Pharisees and Sadducees call into question his power and that ends up causing the disciples to question his love. They're not asking for a sign from the heavens. They're worried they're not going to have any food. And Jesus is saying, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What he's saying is doubt is contagious. They're not doubting God's power, but now they're doubting God's love. And his power and his love go together. And the same is true for us. You see that as the crowds saw God's power, they believed and the disciples got to experience God's love. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees come along and doubt God's power. And now all of a sudden the disciples are doubting God's love. 
And the truth of the matter is, is that this week, we saw lots of people doubting God's power. Neither Hamas nor the state of Israel has looked to God in any way in this situation. There's not been any sort of national fasting and prayer. There's not been any sort of repentance. There's not been any sort of like, let's turn to God. It is people turning to military might. It is people turning to intelligence and to to governmental intervention. It is people effectively doubting the power of God. God is absent from the whole discussion. And the danger is for you and I as we experience that doubt, we've basically come into contact with the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and doubt is contagious. And the problem for us is we're probably not going to doubt God's power, but this week you might find yourself doubting God's love. It may be as simple as Man, if things in the Middle East keep spiraling out of control, maybe America's going to get pulled into this, and then what's going to happen to me? Or it could be, well, if God's not doing anything about the stuff going on in the Middle East, he's not going to do anything about the problem having at work right now. And the doubts begin to spiral out of control. I know that because I felt that this week. I thought, man, what is happening? The world is falling apart. Where is God? And so Wednesday morning, I was like, Lord, what's happening? Are you not not paying attention? And as only God can do in just his most kind sort of way, he happened to take me to a passage that morning in Zephaniah 2. And I read these words. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. And I thought, whoa, Ashkelon is the city in Israel that got hit with the most sort of missiles, and Gaza is the place that is currently being abandoned. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't think that what is currently happening in 2023 in Israel is a final fulfillment of a prophecy here in Zephaniah. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is when I read that verse, I realized what's going on in the Middle East is a sign that God is still engaged and involved and that he happened to write stuff thousands of years ago that he can use today for me to say, hey, look, I know what's going on. Hey, look, I see what is happening. It's a sign of the times and a blessing to go, oh, he's not ignoring what's going on. It was a reminder, God is still in control. And while he does in no way approve of the things that are happening, the killing and the evil and all of the wickedness, nothing happens in God's universe outside of God's control. And this little verse, tucked away in a hidden chapter in Zephaniah 2, was a sign from God to me to say, I do see what's going on. I am aware. That, in turn, gave me great relief. Okay, Lord, if you see that, you see me too. If you know what's going on there in the midst of all of that evil, if you're still in control, then the thing that I was really praying for on Wednesday, you're going to do something about that too. 
Now, as great as that little passage in Zephaniah was for me personally, there is something far more powerful, far more objective, and far more important for you and I in the midst of a world that is filled with doubts about God's power. Do you remember in verse 4, Jesus says, hey, look, you don't get just ask for whatever sign you want in the heavens. What he says is, this generation is not going to get a sign of its own choosing. What they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, it was actually explained earlier in Matthew's gospel. The sign of Jonah is, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah is a reference to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so I'd like for you to turn over to Matthew 27, because we want to look at the sign of Jonah as it happens... Because Jesus has promised that the sign of Jonah is an undeniable sign of God's power and his love. So Matthew 27, as you're turning forward, we're turning forward in time until we get to Good Friday. Matthew 27 is Good Friday. And Jesus is hanging on a cross on Good Friday. Verse 41 As he's hanging on the cross, the chief priests, the leaders, the the people in charge, it says, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Effectively, the religious leaders are saying the same thing in Matthew 27 that they were saying in Matthew 16. If he's God, let him show it. Show it. And the implication is, oh yeah, if he were to come down from the cross right now, we would believe. In Matthew 16, if God, Jesus, if you do something right now and call down fire from heaven or make the sun stand still in the sky, yeah, we'll believe. Oh, if you come down from the cross, we'll believe. The same people, the religious leaders casting doubt on Jesus, on his power, say, if he's really from God, he should come down from that cross. Verse 45 From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jump down to verse 50. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely He was the son of God. Okay, think about this carefully with me. From noon until three in the afternoon, there was darkness. Where? 
in the heavens. What is this? This is what the Pharisees and Sadducees had been asking for. They had said, okay, Jesus, you did all this stuff on earth, but if you're really from God, there should be some sign in the heavens. What do they get? A sign in the heavens. And more than that, they get a sign on the earth. The earth shakes. Tombs are breaking open. The sign is so clear that this non-Christian centurion sees the signs in the heavens and on earth and says, surely this is the Son of God. It is a display of God's power. What about Jesus coming down from the cross? They said if he's the son of God, he'll come down from the cross. Did he? Yes. Not on Good Friday. When does he come down from the cross? I mean, is he, not, is he on a cross still? No. They get what they asked for and more. He's come down from the cross and out of the grave. No one has seen anything like this kind of display. But both things they ask for, they get and more. There is nothing that shows the power of God like the crucifixion and resurrection. No one has ever predicted their death and resurrection. No one has ever come out of the grave the way that Jesus did. No one has ever done anything even remotely like this. As cool as that Zephaniah passage was, what is more objective and more powerful is the sign of Jonah, which is God has said definitively his incomparably great power is at work to raise Jesus from the dead. Those who doubted God's power got everything they asked for and more as a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. But the trick is the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get it when they asked and the way they asked. They got far more than they were asking for, but not when they were asking and how they were asking. The same is true for you, the same is true for me, and the same was true for the disciples. When they're in the boat and they're worried about food, Jesus doesn't snap his fingers, produce bread, and hand it to them. What does he say to them? Oh, you of little faith, don't you think I'm going to take care of you? You don't know how, and you don't know in what way. I might multiply five loads and feed 5,000 people, and you'll have more than enough to eat. I might send bread from heaven like manna on the ground for you to eat. I may have you throw your net into the sea and pull up a bunch of fish more than you can possibly imagine. You don't know how and you don't know when, but Jesus says, do you really think I would let you starve? See, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is not only the definitive statement of God's power, 
It's the definitive statement of his love. If God did not spare his own son, but crucified him while we were sinning, the disciples are worried. They're like, man, we should have thought ahead. We should have brought some bread. Jesus is like, look, if I'm coming to die for you, not just while you've forgotten some stuff, but when you're in active disobedience, how will God not through Jesus fully give us all things? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The crucifixion is the sign of Jonah. The resurrection is the sign of Jonah. It is God's absolute objective statement that his power and his love will never fail. And that if God has done all of these things for you and for me, why would he abandon us when we don't have enough food? The problem is with watching all this stuff on the news and seeing all these people talking about, man, all the Hamas and Israel and all this stuff they're doing and we gotta get the military and we're gonna do this and we got evacuation plans and we gotta have the Red Crescent and we got all these people doing all this stuff. And God's nowhere in any of that as far as how people are talking about him. Because then you start to think, maybe God's not gonna show up and help me with my autistic child. Maybe God's not going to walk with me on this journey of dementia. Maybe God's not going to show up at the end of the month when there's not enough money to pay these bills. Maybe God's not going to help me in this midst of this relationship that I'm struggling with. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, like the disciples, man, I should have known that inflation was coming. I should have planned for this. Like, we should have set more aside. I should have been better prepared for retirement. I should have better done a better job studying for my test this week. You might think, I should do a better job doing devotions with my kids. And the response of Jesus to you and me in the midst of that, and please take this as kindly as I can say it, I think Jesus has a smile on his face when he says to you and to me, oh, you of little faith, do you really think I'm going to stop loving you? Do you really think that just because you didn't study as much as you should have, just because you didn't plan for retirement as much as you could have, just because you didn't do it devotions every night with your kids, just because you didn't do everything perfectly, do you really think that's going to stop my love for you? I'm not excusing any of those things. I'm not saying you shouldn't save money. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study for your classes. But what I am saying is at the end of the day, we spend all our time living in a world that doubts God's power. And doubt is contagious. And we end up doubting his love. And so I think Jesus arranged a message for us today. In whatever situation you're going through, in whatever thing you think that God's not paying attention, in whatever area you think I've probably messed up too much or I should have done this or I wish I would have done that, Jesus wants to say to you today, in full kindness and in total grace, my dear child, why are you doubting? There is nothing, nothing that will ever stop me from loving you. 
if he died on a cross when we were his enemy? Why would we think that now <laughs> that we've accepted him as friend that he would abandon us? And whatever you saw in the news this week, whatever emotions you felt, whatever problem you're going through, the cross and the resurrection is the definitive answer from God. His incomparably great power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work for you and for me. And his unfailing love that is not dependent on your behavior or my behavior, that is not dependent on us being well prepared, is not dependent on us doing everything right, his unfailing love. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate you from that love. So please hear Jesus saying to you and to me this morning, oh, you of little faith, do you think there's anything that's going to stop me from taking good care of you? Let's pray together. Jesus, we confess our lack of faith. We can blame it on the Pharisees and Sadducees. We can blame it on the news media. We can blame it on social media. But at the end of the day, Jesus... You have always been faithful to us. We have more than enough evidence that you love us. Each one of us in this room has story upon story upon story of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. We will fill eternity telling stories of how, how we didn't deserve your help and yet you gave it. We can tell stories about how we ran away from you and you chased after us. We can tell stories about how we rejected you and you continue to love us and hug us and hold us. And so Jesus, we just want to stop and say that we're sorry. We're sorry for doubting your concern for us. We're sorry for doubting your love for us. Help us this day to be reminded that your great power and your infinite love, that you are for us and not against us that you will never leave us or forsake us. That God, even if we forgot to bring bread, we're gonna be okay because you are with us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.